And now time for this encore edition of Who's Talking with D.G. Martin. Tonight, D.G.'s guest is Isabel Wilkerson, winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Journalism and currently professor of journalism and director of narrative nonfiction in the College of Communications at Boston University and author of The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's Great Migration. The two will discuss the new book and the great migration of Southern blacks to the cities of the North through the eyes of three of those who made the journey. And now with this encore edition of Who's Talking on WCHL, here is D.G. Martin. Welcome to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. Well, The Warmth of Other Suns, Epic Story of America's Great Migration, tells the story of that great migration of Southern blacks into the cities of the North, and it's told through the eyes of three people who made the trip in the middle of the last century. It's told or put together or organized. The author of this book is the Pulitzer Prize winner, Isabel Wilkerson, who's been in Chapel Hill talking about this book and about her experience. Um, Ms. Wilkerson, I mean, in the whole context of your book, may I call you Isabel? Is it okay? (laughs) (laughs) And if you'd call me DG, that would be great as well. Um, But this is um, an extraordinary story, um, both because it's essentially the biographies of three people, and then it's also, for some of us, or for me, a tormenting reminder of uh, the place of African-Americans in Southern life, and then not only that, but the struggle to leave, and then the struggle once they got there. How in the world did you get off on this this topic? Well, uh, for one thing, I'm a product of this great migration. And in fact, I wouldn't even exist had there been no great migration because my mother migrated from Rome, Georgia, and my father from Southern Virginia. And they uh, both migrated at different times to Washington, D.C., which was one of the great uh, receiving stations for people from the Carolinas, as you probably know. And uh, they would never have met otherwise because they would have been growing up in their own respective worlds. They finally realized they were the right people for one another. I almost didn't make it into the world. Oh, why? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it took them forever to Now, did they tell that. this story? They, do you well, grow up just, hearing this they story? They married late in life uh-huh. and finally eventually got married to each other and, and had me. And so I, in some ways, owe my very existence to this great migration. I obviously, as you know, was a journalist for the New York Times for, for years, and I, that meant I traveled all over the country and wherever. I went if I were happen if I happened to be interviewing African Americans in Los Angeles or in Chicago or in Detroit or in New York invariably the conversation would turn to a particular part of the South something someone might say um, I can't talk with you for much longer because I have to head to I'm heading back home for a family reunion in Louisiana and they might be from uh, they might be in Los Angeles at the time or if I'm in Chicago someone would say I've got to return home to Mississippi if I were in Washington there'd be constant references growing up constant references always going back home always going back home every I grew up around people surrounded by people who uh, the parents of everyone I knew were from North Carolina South Carolina Georgia and Virginia That's just the way life was. Well, I mean, that rings true for us here in Chapel Hill because we've got friends, uh, both white and black, whose families have moved north. And as you say, from here, uh, there are a lot going to uh, Washington, Baltimore, up up the east east coast. Yeah. Um, Well, I want you to give us one a little bit of basic history before we talk about the three extraordinary characters who are the uh, heart and soul of your book. What, you know, we talk about that great migration, but um, 
did did, this, did it have a beginning and an ending? When when did it begin and what what and did it have an ebb and flow? What well, was first the, of all, I view it as the greatest underreported story of the 20th century, and that's because. Uh, this great migration involved six million people, six million Af- African Americans who in some ways defected from a caste system known as Jim Crow. Uh, they began this uh, departure from the South during World War One, and the reason... Uh, so World War One, sort of the beginning of it. the beginning of it, and the precipitating event was the fact that the North had a labor need, a huge labor shortage, because it was World War One, and that was the European War, it was called the European War at the time, and that meant that immigration from Europe had essentially come to a halt, and these were the people, these European immigrants were the ones who were working the foundries and the factories and the steel mills and the railroads of the North. When immigration was cut off during World War One, the North began to uh, look around for the cheapest labor it could find, and it came to the South to uh, African Americans who were the cheapest labor in in the land, essentially. Many of them uh, were being underpaid, woefully underpaid for their work, and others were not being paid at all because they were essentially working for the right to live on the land that they were farming, in other words, sharecroppers. And so the South, the, the, uh, the North began to recruit people to uh, to uh, work in these foundries. Let me just, I want to come back to that, yeah. right? But when did it end? When did the oh, Great Migration it, end? Ended, uh, it ended in the 1970s. It did not end until the overarching uh, common issue that they were all dealing with was finally resolved after the Civil Rights era, meaning well, uh, the Jim Crow caste system came to an end during that now, time. Uh, now I want to get back to what you're talking about, and that's the migration out. And this is one of the most startling things that popped out at me, and I almost still don't believe it because I'm a you know loyal white Southerner, and, and my view would have been, all right, if all these blacks want to leave, let them go. Let them go. That'd be good. You know, it'll make us all whiter and uh, send those blacks up there until the northerners can know how much trouble we've been through. But a New that, Orleans paper said that, actually. Right. You report, you report mm-hmm. that. But but uh, but that wasn't the way it was, was it? The majority view was that this was not a good thing for the economy of the South because the economy of the South had depended on an oversupply of cheap labor in order to uh, to plant to chop and harvest the cotton, the tobacco, the uh, the rice, the sugar cane that was in some ways the hearts, the heart and soul of what made the southern economy work. And without having that ready supply uh, of cheap labor, that meant that the South, the South's economy could not be dependent upon to be fueling itself under the circumstances. Well, I would have always thought that if somebody wanted to leave, they could just leave. But the uh, Southerners, you tell us some dirty stories about what Southerners did to keep black people. There was almost like uh, the Bible story of the children of Israel in Egypt. You, they had to break away. Well, they what? had to break away. Um, you know, when the, before this migration began, 90% of all African Americans were living in the South, 90%. And it, the, this great migration, at the end of this great migration, nearly half were living outside of the South, you know, for the entire arc from Washington, D.C. to Chicago and then over to the West Coast. It was extremely difficult for people to leave because there were tremendous efforts put upon uh, to put upon the people in order to keep them from leaving. There were people who were actually arrested from their from the train seats once they were on the train heading north. What was the violation of law? Well, I mean, why, why? How could you arrest somebody just for getting on a train? Well, they weren't working. I mean, they, they had vacancy. So there were vacancy laws. Vacancy, wow. and by definition, they weren't working because they were in a train seat. And so they arrested them for vagrancy. The other thing you talked about, laws that were passed to keep people from recruiting blacks. 
That was astounding to me. Um, the fact is that they worked on the supply side by keeping the people from leaving. They would arrest them on the railroad platforms, and when there were too many people to arrest, they would wave the train on through, as they did in Summit, uh, Summit, Mississippi. They were doing all kinds of things to keep them from leaving. But on the demand side, they also were doing things, and that was that they, Macon, Georgia, for example, set out uh, a requirement that uh, anyone who wanted to recruit an African American worker had to first pay a twenty-five thousand dollar licensing. A twenty-five thousand, not twenty-five dollars. No, 25,000 so World War mm. One. That would be the equivalent of half a million dollars now to recruit a single black person. So they were putting out a, a, a tremendous barriers and walls to protect their labor. So the uh, if you wanted to arrest the agent, you would arrest him not for doing it, but no. for not getting the license. But for, and, not ha- and but, but put for being caught doing this recruiting without, without a, license. a license. Wow. Well, um, you want to talk a little bit about, I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break. And then we'll come back. I'm visiting with um, Isabel Wilkerson, who is the author of The Warmth of Other Suns. This is the story of uh, the great migration of uh, Southern blacks uh, into the North. And she and I will continue our discussion after this short break. You are listening to this encore edition of Who's Talking with D.G. Martin and special guest award-winning author Isabel Wilkerson. And now, once again, with this encore edition of Who's Talking, here is D.G. Martin. Welcome back to Who's Talking. My guest is Isabel Wilkerson. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning former journalist and now teacher at Boston College. Boston University. Boston at BU. And you're uh, teaching uh, kids how to write nonfiction. Journalism and narrative nonfiction, which is what the book is. Yeah, it sure is. But it's it's better than fiction. It's uh, (laughs) uh, almost as unbelievable. And the reason, one of the reasons that it's so powerful is that it's, it takes the stories of three uh, people who participated in this migration from the really all the way through their lives. And um, I mean, who's your favorite? Who, who should we talk I about? I do not <laughs> have a favorite. People are insisting that I have a favorite, and I love them all. Well, let me let me <laughs> let me um, maybe a little bit more history, because our idea of uh, this migration is that uh, a bunch of um, sharecroppers and working blacks. Uh, uneducated, uh, poor, uh, unschooled, kind of made their way out of the South and went up and went up north and populated the cities in the north. And it's not totally untrue, but it's mostly untrue. Is there it? were there were sharecroppers and a good you know a good number obviously of, sh- of them were sharecroppers. But the um, a great bulk of the people were actually from small towns uh, in all throughout the South. There were not uh, it was not a haphazard unfurling of lost souls. And in, in fact, it was three distinct migration streams out of the South, which is the the kind of thing that people. Now, will you describe those? You describe those. So yeah. there was one migration stream which involves uh, where we happen to be right now, and that was up the East Coast. It carried people from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas. North and South Carolina, Virginia to Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, and even Boston. That's your stream. That's my stream, <laughs> my stream. Uh, the, there's that, the, the middle stream, which was pe- what carried people from Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Tennessee, and Arkansas up the, mid, the midsection of the United States up to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland. Sort of up the river. Up, up the, the river. Mi- yeah. It was actually the Illinois Central, which up carried them the, out. Up the um, railroad line. Yes. Rough, just north. The, uh, north, north, direct yeah. north. And then there was the, 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 the newest stream, actually. It was the last, last stream of all, which is what carried people from Texas and Louisiana out to Los Angeles and just the entire West Coast. 
So there were three distinct streams. Those, each of those streams reflected um, essentially all classes of African Americans, from teachers and ministers to sharecroppers and uh, 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 business owners, all kinds of people, every every possible combination, which is the reason why when I went out and did the research for this book, you know, I interviewed over 1,200 people. I went to senior centers, I went to AARP meetings, I went to uh, Catholic churches in Los Angeles where everybody was from New Orleans, I went to Baptist churches in New York where everybody was from South Carolina. These things ex exist even to this day. There are all these colonies and clubs that exist in all of these places in the North where people are trying to replicate their experience See, I mean, what, Many of us who, uh, you know, be comfortable, familiar, uh, that visiting a black church in Chapel Hill might not be, or in the country, in Orange County, might not be that much different than visiting in a city like Los Angeles. And you did, I mean, was it in Los Angeles where they, where the, what did the preacher say to you? He said, um, be nice to this young lady. <laughs> oh yes, that was that was in, in Los Angeles. We're 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 praying for the lady in the book she's trying to write. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that would just be typical of uh, now. I would be very comfortable with that and expecting. Did that catch you off guard a little bit? Oh no, I think it's beautiful because you know this is the thing that that is so. Uh, heartening and inspiring to me about both the, the great migration and my experiences working with this book. The people who left were Southerners, and they may have left the South, but the South never left them. And they passed on a lot of the values and the traditions and the culture to their children and their grandchildren, who then went on to, in some ways, be Southerners in themselves. In fact, I've been described as a Southerner once removed, and I love that. <laughs> I think that's just lovely. Well, let's talk. All right, you won't pick one of your favorites. Uh, one of your favorites is a three. Um, we're visiting with Isabel Wilkerson, talking about the warmth of other suns, which is the story of this great migration of African Americans out of the South into the big cities of the North. And um, the the character who rang the most with me was George uh, Starling, who is a Florida African American, and a, a little a little bit different from Florida, but working class, rising up. And these were the these were the black guys that I knew who were just struggling to get a little bit of college under under them, often succeeding in getting a little bit of college, but not getting enough so that they could break out in the South. Exactly. And uh, the you know you, you get to be good enough friends so they would share with you the frustration about. It. So tell us about. George. I'm I mean, so George's story about George because the other two, uh, Dr. Foster, who left uh, Monroe, Louisiana, for California, is quite flamboyant, and a lot I of times talk about him we could talk <laughs> about him. But but George Starling had been. He was from Florida. He's from Central Florida, where the essential work was uh, was picking citrus fruit. He would had a little education, but the money had run out, and the father decided it didn't. He didn't seem where it was worth it to keep sending him, having to save. He couldn't go to school in the county where he was because African Americans weren't permitted to. Go to the state. This would have school. been like 19. This was in the 1930s, late 30s, early 40s, and so uh, he ended up having to go back to picking citrus. But the working conditions were very difficult. There was it was dangerous, and they were being woefully underpaid. And These so he great oranges to, that we eat and we love and we romanticize from Florida—they don't come off the trees automatically. No, yeah. someone has to climb up into those 40-foot trees and and pull get all those oranges out of the tree at great peril to themselves. I mean, they could they could uh, step onto a limb that was weak and fall and and hurt themselves and, and essentially make themselves uh, 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 
um, disabled for life and there'd be nothing for them. What so he, made George leave? So what made him leave was that he had been attempting to uh, get a little bit more for the hard work that they were doing. He went and he would negotiate with the uh, with the foreman to try to get maybe a nickel more box for boxes that they were only getting maybe 12 cents a box. And those boxes were going to go out to the open market for three or four dollars. So it was very clear that there was a huge discrepancy between what they were making and what they were actually worth. But for having done that um, in the 1940s, this is World War II, that was really not acceptable for an African American to go in to negotiate with, uh, with uh, an employer in such a way. And so there was actually a, he got word that there had been uh, a plot against him mm -hmm. for having done this. I love this um, Bull Connor character, like I think his name was Willis McCall. Willis McCall, the sheriff. He was the sh high sheriff. The and this high is sheriff. Uh, um, Lake a county, county down near what Disney World now, you know, yeah, down just north but, of Disney World. But but um, but in Orange Disney producing. World wasn't there then. Yeah, I mean, this long is, time. I'm, no, I mean, this is, this is just hard to believe that Florida was even. We we think of Florida not as a southern state anymore, but it was really southern uh, back when George was coming along. Now. Um, uh, so why didn't George just leave? I mean, George had to sneak out. Why couldn't he just why couldn't he just leave? Well, because there was a plot against him, against him and the two friends of his that were working together out on the fields and had been actually having some success in, in negotiating higher wages. They'd wait till they got out to the to the groves and then they would say, well, we're not going to pick unless you can pay us a nickel more a box. And the, the grove owners didn't take to that kindly at all. There had been some standoffs in the groves and it was very perilous at that time. That was an era where people were being ag uh, arrested on the streets for great vagrancy, even on a Saturday or from their home for not working because there was great demand for the north in the north for oranges and orange juice to have with their uh, their uh, ham let's and just eggs. back up because this is hard for me to deal with and that is that these uh, work, black workers if they decided to take a Saturday off a Saturday off. then not only would they risk uh, losing their jobs or having a problem but the law was going to come arrest them for not working there are many, there's many, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of documentation. This is not even from the oral histories that I got. When I interviewed all these people, I actually believe a lot of the people that I interviewed actually were holding back a great deal from what they were experiencing. The documents and the written records in the newspapers and in other histories actually were more extreme than what the people even told me. Uh, there were examples of Willis McCall, and he proudly would say that he would go out and, and arrest the people. He would arrest the people from their homes for not working on a Saturday, and that was the charge. That was his part of his job. That was his that job. That was what he needed to get reelected by the white people exactly. of that county was to help the economy by keeping the the workers, uh, mostly black, in line and at work. They needed to get that harvest out. It was like their I mean, economy I, yeah, not much it. different from. Um, the times of slavery when you'd have a master who would round you up and make you go to work even when you didn't want on Saturdays even when you didn't want that to. was more perilous than we can even imagine now it doesn't even sound like the United States it of really America. doesn't well uh, George also is but anyway he, he this is a guy who has equivalent of a junior college education yes. and ambition to be more than something that. more and uh, also th this is this rang true with me because this is a guy who's a I call, you know, I'm a white person, I call him a troublemaker, and he would say, I, I'm just not going to be pushed around. I mean, and there would be times when he, he just wanted, he bit his lip, he tried not to do it, but he just couldn't help it. He wasn't going to be pushed around by white people, and it got him in trouble 
he got him in trouble so that he and his two friends who had been working out there they were the young uh the young people out there in the groves trying to get these uh get better conditions for the people that uh, out in the groves when they were working he ended up having to they all three of them ended up having to flee for their lives essentially and they all fled north one to washington dc one to rochester new york and george himself to new york city to harlem well, um in there's so much more to this story we can't <laughs> talk about it but one of the things that interested me was what he found in new york city and how he adapted to it and what are his problems and what were the great thing what were the good things about being in New York well the good thing was that they recreated their experience in the south in the north I mean he had he uh, he was surrounded by people who were from the same Florida towns as he was which is what most of them did believe it or not uh, they uh, they actually one of his friends would go out and hunt possum that would be a very big deal they'd go up to Connecticut and hunt, hunt possum right. just as they'd done back here so there's this there's this desire to recreate their own world up there the problem was that it was much more expensive Expensive to live there than it had been here. It was a forbidding, hostile, and alien world where the people often had to work, uh, you know, very long hours or two and three jobs just to be able to survive there. There was a tremendous amount of pressure on them to do that, and for them to be able to survive meant that they would often have to leave their children unattended. They didn't have the same community and extended family to be able to watch out for the kids. And so, what one of the things that happened to him and to many, many other families is that they had no idea what they were stepping into when they went into these big forbidding cities of the north. And they had no idea what their children were being exposed to in these big crowded cities where people were living one on top of the other. There were numbers runners and policy kings and there were gang members and there were there were there were hustlers and all kinds of people who could easily pick off the children of these people who were working, you know, mm-hmm. long, long hours in order to scuffling in order to make it in this in the big north. And so that's one of the things that happened to him. How as did well. George make a living up there? He made a living. He got a job. Uh, <laughs> and he got a job as a railroad porter, which meant that he ended up having to go right back north and south, the very place that he had left. He kept coming back and forth. He actually was very careful, though, because he did not take a route that would take him back to Eustace, Florida. As long as the sheriff was there and as long as all the people who were there uh, who had been um, threatened by his activities of trying to round up the workers in, in search of better pay, uh, better work conditions. As long as they were still there, he took a route that took him to Birmingham. Well, I don't want to challenge you about your own book, but one of my favorite passages of the book was when he did pass by his hometown and he saw the sheriff just for a brief encounter. And he was able to. Will you tell that story? Well, the thing is, that in in those in those small towns, everybody knew one another. And uh, Will, Sheriff Willis McCall was someone who would come into uh, George's father happened to have a, a convenience store, mm-hmm. and the sheriff would come in, and he'd just help himself to whatever he wanted because he could do it. I mean, what what was his, who's going to stop what him? Would, yeah. yeah, who was going to stop him? And uh, so when on one of the routes when uh, that George was on that happened to come through Wildwood, it turned out the sheriff was actually escorting one of his prisoners off the train. And and he saw George and he said, aren't you George Starling's boy? And, uh, you know, George Starling had been in the North for a while and, and didn't really take well to that kind of uh, uh, reference to him. So he said, well, I'm George Starling's son. And he kind of stood up for himself. He would not have said that if he wasn't on a train that was going to get ready. Exactly. To go. He was getting ready to go. <laughs> well, and this sheriff, I mean, gosh, this, the book is full of these stories. But this sheriff was the 
one really that he was afraid of when he left, who was, who was going to track him down and probably, well, we don't know, but maybe even take so far as to kill him, to lynch him. Done, so, they could have done whatever they wanted uh, they were They were really after him. Well, I want to talk some more about George, but there are several <laughs> other people uh, who are key to your story. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about them. I'm visiting with uh, Isabel Wilkerson. She's the author of The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's great migration. She and I'll be right back. You are listening to this encore edition of Who's Talking with D.G. Martin and special guest award-winning author Isabel Wilkerson. And now, once again, with this encore edition of Who's Talking, here is D.G. Martin. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. We're talking about this wonderful part of American history that... um, we know a lot about because we know people and families that are a part of it, but it's um, it hadn't it hadn't made it to the history books uh, maybe the way it should. It's how when you, um, Isabel Wilkerson, you're the author of this great book about it. When you're trying to get somebody's attention about how important this migration is in American life, what are some of the gems that you pull? What's your elevator speech about? You want to know about this migration? Well, yeah. I say that this was the, the one of the greatest transfers of Southern culture that has really occurred within the in the course of, uh, of our history. We had six million people who were Southerners who transported the South, you know, both the, in their uh, in their luggage with the King James Bibles, with their 12 string guitars, and in their hearts. Many of the people uh, brought all the Southern traditions with them. And, uh, and, and what they ultimately did was uh, it became a marriage of the North and the South as their children went on to, in some ways, become some of the most prominent people of the 20th century. That's one of the things I like to be able to remind people of. Yeah, and well, I think you give a lot of illustrations. Southern, like, uh, Southerners should all, I, I believe we should all take pride in the fact that this was a triumph in some ways. of. So this is culture. the way, you, and if you want to really uh, counter, uh, you can say, we couldn't conquer the North in the Civil War, but the uh, Great Migration, we, the South was able to impose its culture on the rest of the country. Well, through these people, yeah. unwittingly, these became unwitting ambassadors of, of Southern culture. Um, you know, many, much of what we view as American culture is culture that grew out of this great migration of people from the South to the North. What these people did was they created whole new art forms. Jazz would never have existed had there been no great migration. And some of the greatest uh, contributors to, to this whole new art form were from North Carolina. I mean, uh, you know, when you think about Thelonious Monk, his parents had migrated from here to to Harlem when he was five years old, where he got the opportunity really to be able to, he was this this genius. They carried the the spirituals and the gospel music of the South with them, and it had an opportunity to flourish there in this new world, and he became one of the best-known people in jazz. John Coltrane, he left when he was 17 years old, carried the jazz, carried the the gospel and the the blues and the spirituals inside of him, and then went to Mm -hmm. Philadelphia where he got his first alto sax. He got his first alto Saxon Philadelphia, which was the, in some ways, a capital of, of, of it was like North Carolina the, North. The capital of the Northern South. Exactly, <laughs> capital of the Northern South. How about that? And and uh, so he had a chance to do that. Where would jazz be? You know, where yeah. would music be? Oh, it's a great story. Well, um, I love that story, and I love all the history in your book that sets some of the records straight that I've been confused about. But what I love more than anything are these stories of these people. And uh, one of the people that I really loved, uh, that I identified with, was uh, Ida Mae. And, uh, you know, she's just a a, um, cotton picker. I mean, you know, (laughs) she's just straight off the uh, sharecropping farms of the South, a typical, uh, but 
Because uh, she was more, terrible at picking cotton. Yeah, she was a bad I cotton. I love that. <laughs> I never thought about being good or bad at it, but she actually was bad at well, it. Well, she was said to be really bad about it, but she did it. And she uh, she would go out on that, even on the last day that she was there. She, But, yeah. but this is uh, this is terrible because this is just at the end of the story. But the, she hated this. She didn't like, oh. you know, she knew she was bad. I know where you But when going. she was an <laughs> older woman and got to go home, what did she want to do? Well, I, I went back with her. You I went back with I took her back, and her family let me take her back with me. And we were driving. So where were you? Where we, you? we were in Chickasaw County, Mississippi, and we were. it was at the harvest mm-hmm. time. It was around October of, of, that, of the year that we went, which is about the time of year that she left originally. We're driving down a two-lane road heading into the county, and we pass all this cotton that's ready to be picked, hadn't been picked yet, empty, no one else on the road. And as we're driving, she just said, well, let's stop the car. And I said, well, what are we going to do? She said, well, let's go pick some. And I said, you know, this cotton belongs to somebody. And or, is that OK? And, you know, we're in Mississippi be, uh, beyond <laughs> all of that. And she said, oh, they won't care what little bit we pick. And so she got out there. She couldn't wait to get out there and start picking. It was almost as if it was it was uh, re it was almost reenacting. It was reactivating some some ancient memory within. So this her. was like 60 years. Oh, she hadn't been in Mississippi her. for 60 years. I mean, she had not she had not. And uh, this, I mean, this is for me the lesson of um, memory that the that sometimes we want to recreate our worst memory. The other thing that you told about in in, in this story that she told about uh, having not been a good cotton picker and <laughs> this and it's hard, awfully backbreaking work. Um, that she gets up um, to the north. And she starts missing the fellowship that was a part of that hard work, that that memory comes back uh, more than the backbreaking part of it. Yes, because what they had done is that they had found a way to make a life for themselves and to make peace with the situation that they were in. She, in particular, is a great lesson in that. You know, the book is about the Great Migration. You know, the, it's called The Warmth of Other Sons, and it's about the Great Migration. But ultimately, it's a story about survival. It's a story about courage. It's a story about dignity and what it takes to maintain that. So she found a way. One reason why she was actually, I consider her a very successful person in, an, in a, a way that we don't often think of success, is because she happened to have one of the hardest lives a person could have had in the 20th century. Just all kinds of deprivation. On both sides, both before she both left. Both before and then she, she left, left, and even when she got to Chicago, she ended up, they ended up buying a three flat in a, in a neighborhood that ended up being overrun in some ways by, um, by uh, gang activity. Not the majority of the people there, but there's just, all it takes is just a few, and it makes life difficult for everyone there. She moved into a neighborhood that emptied of its white people within months of her arrival. So she experienced a lot of the things that we consider uh, the hardship of life in the North and in the South. And yet she found a way of maintaining the best of both places. Her, she never changed her Mississippi accent for the entire right. time that <laughs> right, she was, right. that she had lived, was living in the, in the North. She lived in the North actually longer than she did in the South. And yet she retained all of the things. She could make sweet potato pie like anybody in the Delta, but she kept track of what was going on with the mayor races and with uh, with the, the Chicago Bulls. She was following the, you know, the defensive line. All right, well, this leads me to one of my favorite <laughs> stories in your book. Uh, and, you know, the encounters with celebrities are always fun. Oh. And uh, Ida Mae got interested in politics early on. And she, of course, couldn't vote in Mississippi. And she didn't know what voting was about. No. But once she got into it, she was. And so um, there was this minor political figure that she happened to run into <laughs> that uh, struck me as interesting that she 
tipped her hat to her. Well, who? Uh, tell us the story and tell us who. Well, she who. happened to live in a in a district called South Shore in Chicago, and that happened to be a district that was predominantly predominantly black. It had emptied of its black of its white people, which was one of the things that happened in the in the North. People talk about what's happened in the South, but this is what happened in the North. Um, and it was a it was a neighborhood that had a lot of challenges as a result of this emptying out of people. And uh, so there was a person who um, became the new state senator of her uh, district. He was someone that a lot of people hadn't heard of before because he wasn't originally from Chicago. He had a wife who actually was from that part of of of, of, uh, of Chicago. And uh, what they used to, what she used to do is, in, in order to try to keep the community in better shape, she and other homeowners would go to community meetings every month, once a month, at the Presbyterian Church. You go to the basement of the church, and there would be there would be all kinds of politicians who would come in and make their you know make their the Chicago politics. Chicago I, politics. They'd come I in. I get my road. The aldermen and all that would come in. But one particular day, and usually they come in with a big entourage and lights and cameras. But one day, a very quiet uh, man came in, very slender, tall, boyish looking. And he came in and it was announced that he was the new state senator for their district. Now, that was not a very popular t- uh, title to have. No one really paid much attention to what the state senators did because they were kind of invisible. They'd be in Springfield and they could never connect exactly what they were doing. They weren't the ones who fixed the potholes or got the, the uh, gangbangers off the street. Um, they did things like health care and that sort of thing. And um, so he came in and he made his announcement and people listened very, you know, very, uh, um, you know, uh, graciously. And then they went back to wanting to talk to the police about what was going on in the community when it came to crime. The man walked up the steps after he'd made his announcement and very few people would have realized that they had just seen the man who had become the first African-American president of the United States. Her state senator was Barack Obama. Well. And she was one of the first people to ever have voted for him because that was the first position he'd ever run for office for. Well, what a great story. This sharecropper, uneducated woman, makes it to Chicago and helps get Barack Obama's political career going. Exactly. We're visiting with Isabel Wilkerson, talking about her book, The Warmth of Other Suns. She and I'll be right back. You are listening to this encore edition of Who's Talking with D.G. Martin and special guest award-winning author Isabel Wilkerson. And now, once again, with this encore edition of Who's Talking, here is D.G. Martin. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin talking about one of the great, and one of the great stories of American history. And many of us know uh, people who participated in it. The book is The Warmth of Other Suns. It's a story of the. Uh, black migration out of the south into the cities of the north, and it's written by Isabel Wilkerson, who's been in Chapel Hill as our guest today. Uh, Isabel, thank you again for spending this time with uh, us. Thank you. Well, you, uh, your book is a wonderful history book, and it sets straight a lot of uh, m- misunderstanding about this. But the power of the book is really in the people, and we've talked about two of them. Another person who's um, a part of this migration, I would have judged this is not typical. This is a professional person migrating. Will you tell us his story? Yes, this is Robert Joseph Pershing Foster, Dr. Foster. He had been a surgeon in the Army, and he'd been a surgeon during the Korean conflict, uh, based actually in Europe. When he got out of the Army, it turned out he couldn't practice surgery in his own hometown, which was Monroe, Louisiana. And so he set out on a course to to uh, go to California, which he thought would offer him better prospects for being able to practice as a surgeon. Why did he want to leave? 
he wanted to leave for multiple reasons. One is he couldn't practice in his own hometown. Uh, they would not permit uh, African-American uh, black doctors to work in the hospitals called St. Francis Hospital in, in Monroe. And as a surgeon, he needed to be able to have a hospital to work in because he was not a you know, family practitioner. And so it wasn't possible for him at all. He also had a, a young family that, that he wanted to be able to have his daughters grow up in a place where they would be safe and have opportunities for education. So he set out on this course, and he was going to be driving the way by himself, and he was going to send for his family after he got situated, which is kind of the thing that immigrants mm -hmm. do when you think about mm -hmm. it. He was going to be driving ultimately nearly 2,000 miles by himself, and he had set out this this journey thinking that he'd be able to, once he got past a certain point, he'd be able to stop and, and he'd be out of the Jim Crow caste system, which had limited him otherwise. It's even hard, hard these days for us to remember that in North Carolina and in the every part of the rest of the South, black person had to be very creative to find a place to stay. Very couldn't creative. stay in the regular hotel or motel. And couldn't be assured of being able to get food on the road, go into a restaurant. There were many limits on, on them. Even gas could mm. be difficult to But he obtain. thought once he got out of Texas, into he New Mexico and Arizona, he could do it. And, and it didn't work out that way. And it's a memory that was seared in his brain for the rest of his Seared life. in he, his brain. He never, I mean, he never he told me that over. story over and over he, and over he again. Said, he said, this thing I've gone over 3,000 times. And he, uh, he was driving through the desert uh, at night, and he thought that he'd be able to find a place because night had, a, night had fallen. And it turned out that over and over and over again, he was turned away from people who clearly uh, had a vacancy sign out there, but would so not I rent just, him a room. Sorry, Doc, I just rent rented my last just room. Just rented our last room. Mm -hmm. And even as he was walking, driving away from that place, there was a vacancy sign still blinking. So he knew that, that this, this meant that Jim Crow, as he understood it, had actually extended far beyond the boundaries that we typically think of. When he got to Los Angeles, he found that Jim Crow had not had visited Los Angeles Well, it as turns well. out that they called it James Crow <laughs> in California. Yeah, so it was, he, he found that there were also many limits and restrictions on him. He had to work really hard in order to create a, 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 a practice for himself. There were a lot of restrictions and, and uh, challenges because it turned out that many of the African Americans who were already there were not all that excited about these new arrivals coming mm -hmm. in. They faced incredible challenges going into these big cities. And, and learning about that helped, helped me to have a great deal of, of empathy in some ways for what they had gone through. One they didn't the, talk yeah. about it afterward, and they didn't tell their children and grandchildren because it was too painful to talk about. One of the stories that I'm surprised uh, he was willing to tell you was uh, that there was a prejudice against black doctors in the what you, what in that time we call colored, and you use that term yes. to refer uh, in the colored community. He went out and uh, in, in, in a job doing medical, do calling on houses to do medical exams, he examined the <coughs> husband, and then when he came to the wife, she she said, "Uh, -uh. she said, I, well, I can't use the word, but she said I'm not going to let any black doctor uh, examine me. She she was just she's a black person." You'd think, oh, gosh, you know, she'd love it if there's a black professional, but it didn't work that way. She had internalized the very caste system and all of the assumptions that, that were already in place in the larger society. She'd internalized that and would not let this doctor, who was a surgeon and actually was in some ways beneath him to even do right. a, a simple, to take her blood pressure was, was well beneath his, his capabilities, and yet she wouldn't let him even do that. So he ran into a lot of roadblocks, and all of them ran into roadblocks from places that you wouldn't expect. 
from uh, from uh, recent immigrants from other countries, other parts of the world who had arrived in this country and uh, w wanting the same thing as them, but they also were the, were resisting and feeling threatened by their arrival. African Americans who were there already in the North were resenting and resisting their arrival. Yeah. There was a, there were assumptions made about them merely because they were Southern. They had you know they had accents that were considered different from from others. There were assumptions made about them on the basis of that. They had a really hard and difficult time, and yet they didn't give up because they couldn't give up. In other words, for people like that, people who make this great leap of faith and jumping into the unknown, they couldn't, you know, failure is not an option. Failure is not an option because they couldn't have the people back home say, see, I knew you weren't going to make it. You had to it. come back. Well, so there are two, um, great story about this doctor. There are two things. I'm celebrity conscious, of course, and <laughs> one of the things, I want you to tell the story if you can quickly, but um, um, Robert had a song written about him. Had and, a song written about yeah, him. by a pretty famous guy. By a pretty famous guy who also was a part of the Great Migration, Ray Charles, who'd come from Florida and went to Seattle and ended up in Los Angeles, became one of his patients. His most famous patient was Ray Charles. And Ray Charles uh, had such great uh, gratitude for him because Ray Charles actually um, uh, cut himself and damaged his hand to such a degree that he actually might not have been able to continue to, have, to play, which would have been devastating for, for him. And this would have been in the um, uh, the early 1960s. Yeah. And so uh, Dr. Foster, uh, Robert Foster, uh, sewed him up and, and actually saved his hand. And as a result of that, Ray Charles had a song written about his It made doctor. the charts. It made the charts. Well, this called is Hide just great, great. And a great story about Ray Charles and, uh, uh, the, uh, and, and, and to prove it. Uh, Ray Charles is a, uh, named, named a son. Named after, a son. Uh, he has a son named Robert after him, who, who, who Dr. Foster delivered. The other thing, real quickly, that is a connection with this academic community in Chapel Hill is that um, Dr. Foster married the daughter of the president of the universe of the Atlanta University, uh, Dr. Clement, Dr. Rufus Clement, Clement who yes. is a force in himself. And we don't have time to talk. I mean, but that's another <laughs> book, I think. And then there's a reference uh, to W. B. Du Bois as a whole. Yeah, thing he's about the guy him. who uh, who uh, ousted him. Ousted. Yeah. Yeah, that's another story. We're out of time. but And it's not the only story that we've missed talking about. about but uh, the important thing is uh, that which you cover through these stories is this uh, tremendous uh, reorganization of our country and, as you point out, uh, recreating or re-energizing American culture through the uh, great migration that you describe in your book, The Warmth of Other Suns. Thank you, Isabel Wilkerson, for being our guest. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to all y'all for listening. This has been Who's Talking? B.G. Martin. I'll be right back here soon.